Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. changed in your life since you became a Christian and how do you think that change came about? Okay, that was just to whet your appetite a little bit for this last session. We're talking about sanctification which is about how change happens in the life of a Christian. The word sanctification literally means to set apart for God's special use and purpose. But the way we're talking about it is how our life, how our thinking, how our actions, how everything about us becomes increasingly conformed to God's image. So I put a couple of quotes on your handout that get into it. Jerry Bridges said that sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us whereby our inner being is progressively changed, freeing us more and more from sinful traits and developing within us over time the virtues of Christ-like character. And then J.I. Packer says the concept is not of sin being totally eradicated, that's to claim too much, or merely counteracted, that's to say too little, but of a divinely wrought character change, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. Last time we were here, we talked about salvation. And one of the things that Andrew highlighted was justification. And that's being made right with God. Now, sanctification is very different to justification. And lots of the problems historically have been when people have confused the two. So justification is about our legal standing with God. So that means we are right before God. Whereas sanctification is more to do with the internal condition of our heart, what's going on inside us. Sanctification happens throughout life. It's a continuous process. As opposed to justification, it's once for all. The moment we become a Christian, we're justified, we're right with God. But the same isn't true of sanctification. It's not like snap your fingers and everything gets sorted in your life straight away. It's a gradual thing. Justification is entirely down to God. It's something that he does through Christ on the cross. When we put our faith in him, we are justified. Sanctification is also a work of God, but it's a cooperative work of God. It's God and us together working and we're changed. Justification is perfect in this life, completely done. Sanctification will never be perfect in this life. It will always be a thing that can happen increasingly and increasingly more and more. Justification is the same for all Christians. All of us are equal sons and daughters of God. All of us are equally righteous in his sight. Sanctification isn't the same in all Christians. Some will be more mature in the faith than others. Some will have wrestled through things that others are still wrestling with. What do you think might be some of the problems if we confuse these two things, justification and sanctification? There might be a tendency to condemn what we see as sin in others. Mm -hmm. 
the, maybe the things that we've worked out. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so we can look at someone's lifestyle, what they're doing, uh, and think, okay, if it's not up to my level, they can't be right with God, or maybe we wouldn't quite phrase it that way, but it's a version of that, isn't it? Yeah. In awareness of your own sin, you make you start doubting your salvation. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that's a, a really good one. So you see stuff that's still to be worked on, and you think, well, because sanctification isn't complete, maybe justification hasn't happened. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a big one. Um, we, we can um, work, keep working on, on perfection mm -hmm. as a way of earning. Yes. Yeah. So, so the the reason we're going at the sanctification process is because we're not fully confident in what justification has done. Yeah. Well, the flip side of it is we can be so confident that justification has worked, we can see no need to be sanctified and to keep growing and almost have a anything-goes approach to the Christian life. Both are important. Both are needed. Change is necessary, and I want to give you three reasons why it is. One of the reasons is because of where we've come from. So because we come from sin, Beth Moore said... I don't just commit sin. Apart from God, I am sinful. My problem's not just what I do, it's who I am without his nature. So our sin nature is so um, kind of full and dominant without God that that's one reason why change needs to happen. A second reason is where we're going to. The new creation, the perfection of what God's got for us. That's interesting, at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, describing the New Jerusalem, said, blessed are those who wash their robes, that's justification, so they'll have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. But outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So because we're going to this place where nothing evil or immoral will be in, don't we want to see that increasingly reflected in our lives now as well? And then thirdly, how are we made? We're made in the image of God. And because we're made in his image, we want to truly reflect his image in the way we live. So change is necessary. Change is possible as well. And I think sometimes we get stuck on this point. I, I've noticed we have a tendency, and may, maybe you haven't seen the same thing, to be quite pessimistic about the idea of change in our lives and others. We can talk about, we'll just be stuck in the same stuff forever and have this low view of what God can do in our lives. But change is possible. Let's have a few Bible passages. Could I have some volunteers to read some passages? Um, if someone would be happy to read Ezekiel 36 verses 24 to 26, anyone up for that? Thank you. And then after that, if someone else could do Luke 6, 43 to 45. Thank you. And then um, Galatians 5, 16 to 26. Yeah. Thank you very much. Let's, let's read those three, please. <laughs> Okay, let's start with Luke, then Galatians, then Ezekiel. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again for the bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. The figs are not gathered from thorns you, 
and on a grave stitch from the bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Thank you. So what we're saying there is because God's done a work in us, in our heart, then the fruit in our life will start to change and reflect what's happened on the inside. Okay, let's hear Galatians that gets more into what the fruit is. Galatians 5, from verse 16. Yep. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Thank you. So we're hearing about the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit does in us. But we're instructed to keep in step with the Spirit. So there's an active part for us to play in that as well. And then Ezekiel 36 is an Old Testament promise that speaks into this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Thank you. So it's talking about a new heart we will be given that causes us to keep his statutes and do them, to causes us to walk in his ways. So you hear verses like that and you think, well, it's fine. It's pretty clear cut, isn't it? So we become a Christian. God gives us a new heart. From this new heart, new fruit comes and we change. That's how it should work, right? This is the point that usually someone puts their hand up and it's like, right, elephant in the room, Bible verse... Romans chapter 7, 19 and 20 often get brought up into this discussion and they have something a bit different to say. It says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So people read these verses and they're like, see, Paul didn't do what he wanted to do. Paul just was trapped in this pattern of sin, keeping on doing the same things over and over again, no control to change it. That must be the Christian life. It's in the Bible, right? We're going to think about that for a bit. So here's your first exercise I'd love you to do. Uh, there's a box here, Romans chapter 6. I've given you four little verses or a couple of verses from that chapter. What do they teach us about the relationship of the Christian believer 
with sin. And then if you get time, start to think about how that might square with what we read in Romans 7, 19 to 20. A few minutes on that. Okay, let's feed back a bit of what we came up with for these. So the first one was verse 6. What do we see verse 6 saying about the relationship of the believer with sin? We're not slaves anymore, uh, and we're dead to it, aren't we? Uh, Our old self was crucified with him, that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, good image to have in mind. We're not a slave to it. Particularly when you think about what Romans 7 was saying, which seems a little bit like, I don't do what I want, it's doing it in me. That feels a bit slavery-ish. What about 7 and 8? What did we come up with here? Set free. We are free from it. It doesn't have that constraining effect, but we are free now we're in Christ. Great. What about 9 to 11? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And that's a good phrase, reckon yourself. That's about identity. It's about what you speak over yourself, isn't it? Just a side note here. One thing that I've noticed happens quite a lot is I think people are well-meaning, but even as Christians, people will say, well, I'm a sinner. Don't use that as an identity badge. Now, if you're saying, yes, there is still an ongoing battle with sin in my life, you're saying something accurate, but it can often be worn as an identity badge where saint is the identity badge on a believer. And that's just an important thing to to think about here. That's not who we are anymore. We've been moved out of one realm into the other. Uh, And then the last one, 12 and 13. Yeah. 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 So this is like where the rubber hits the road. This is the practical application of that. We shouldn't be presenting ourselves here because we're dead to it. We're set free from it. We're not enslaved by it. We're not to consider ourselves under sin. Therefore, don't present yourself to sin. That's the the logic of Romans six. At the beginning of chapter 7, then, he uses this analogy of how in a marriage, through death, a marriage is ended. So the marriage lasts as long as one person dies, but then you're freed from that covenant, that, um, that contract. And he said, as we've died in Christ, so our um, contract with the law is done. We're not under the law, and the law with sin and condemnation was where we were, but dead in Christ, now we're free from that. That's the image he uses. And then you've got a contrast in verse 5 with verse 6. This is two different possible states. One's under the law, one's not under the law. So verse 5, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's one status. Or, verse 6, but now we're discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so we're not, so that we are slaves, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. That's the different status. Unbeliever under the law, believer in Christ. They're the two things it could be. What I want you to do now is look at the rest of Romans 7. So particularly verses 7 to 24. I've printed them out on the next page of your handout. 
And this is the one that I asked you to bring some highlighters for. So if you have brought highlighters, this will help you. If not, make the best of it, underline, asterisks, whatever you need to do. I've given you five words to look for. So the words grace, faith, spirit, Jesus or Christ. Every time you see one of those words, or a version of it, so if you're looking for grace and you see gracious, that's fine, you can, you can count that. So any like, derivatives of these words, highlight any of those five in one colour. Then there's a second list, law, sin, flesh, death, highlight those in a second colour, and just see what you see happening in this passage. through that whether you've got to the end or not I'm not sure but I think you will have ended up with something that looks a bit like this um, yes. so I, I got wand in my green um, spiritual kind of a derivative of spirit not quite in the same sense but let's count it and I counted up last night, I think it was 35, I might have got the number slightly wrong, that I saw uh, on the second set of words. It's quite stark, isn't it, when you just look at these verses and get a sense of what words are coming up a lot. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about law, he's talking about flesh, he's talking about sin, he's talking about death. Now, having just painted the picture of these two states of being, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for, for death. That's the, the flavor of status one. And it's coming all the way through the rest of the chapter. Whereas the different states, discharged from the law, dead to what held us captive, slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. What we're going to see is then chapter eight paints that contrast. We're going to see something very different. Because he ends chapter 7 with a question. And the question, he says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then goes on to answer his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the solution to this status of being stuck, not able to do right, constrained by sin to keep doing wrong and keep being in that cycle of constantly doing what's wrong and unable to break it. Who can escape me from that? Who can save me from that? Who can rescue me? Jesus can. And then we see chapter eight start to shed light on the answer. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you're not in the flesh, 
You're in the spirit since the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father... It's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Do you see how it's different? Do you see how we're not living in that fleshly under law way? We're living by the spirit at work in us. And so it's totally different. So the question I guess we need to ask is, how do we see this actually play out? How does this change hit our lives? Um, to think about this, I want you to imagine a river. Now, you're going to the river and you're seeing what's in the water. Now, what you might decide is, right, I, I, I want to clean up this water. It's, it's, there's litter, there's all sorts of junk in it. I'm going to take out what I see in front of me. Is that going to work? It's not going to work. And here's why. The river flows. So what's put in upstream is what will hit you where you are. Often when we try and see change happen in life, it's like taking stuff out of the river. We look at the deeds. If you've ever done New Year's resolutions and then broken them, you'll know this. I'm going to change this thing that I'm doing, but without understanding, well, why were you doing that thing in the first place? Change won't last. So you've got the deeds. These are the presenting problems. But actually behind the deeds are the thoughts, what's in your head. So for example, if I spend all day just thinking about like hostility and how I'm going to get revenge on all these people who are annoying me, if I'm thinking about that, is it more or less likely that when they do it, I'm going to snap at them and uh, let a bit of anger out? It's more likely I fed my thoughts. So um, if I spend all day indulging lustful thoughts, then is it more or less likely I'll commit adultery or look at porn or something like that? More likely, not less likely, if my thoughts are going in a certain direction. That's why in Romans 12, Paul says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind. Yeah? We're, we're to change our mind and our thinking. But actually, our thinking isn't far enough because there's a step even beyond thinking. How do you decide what you think about? Well, it's your heart. It's what you love. So think about a time you've had a crush on somebody. You think about them all the time. And it's not because you've decided, yeah, I'm going to give seven hours this evening to thinking about that person. <laughs> you just do, right? Or you're obsessed with some hobby, and so it just keeps coming to mind over and over again. What's on your heart affects what you think about. It doesn't work the same the other way. So let's say um, 
you need to think about something like that. You're revising for an exam. You're doing hours of study and thinking about this topic. Do you start to love it? Well, not always. You start to get fed up of it, right? Thinking can't change the heart to the same extent the heart can change the mind. Now, there is a bit of ebb and flow and back and forth, but the biblical picture is it's what's in our heart that's the fountain that everything else flows from. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, let me get there. When he'd left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples asked him about a parable. He said to them, then do you also fail to understand? Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer, thus he declared all foods clean. He said it's what comes out of a person that defiles. It's from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. Fornication, theft, murder, adultery, avarice, wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, envy, slander, pride, folly. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. So the word I tend to use for what's going on in our heart is the word affections. I don't know if you've come across that word before. I would have used the word emotions because it's similar, but when we hear emotions, we think of something kind of flimsy and transient and kind of here for a bit and goes. Affections is like that, but it's the longer, deep-seated version of it. It's the loves, it's the desires, it's the, the strong feelings of the heart. These are the things that shape our thoughts, and then our thoughts shape our deeds. So how do we change? Can we change our deeds? Sometimes, not often. Like every once in a while, you might get a little nudge from the Holy Spirit. Hey, why don't you start doing this? And you put it into practice. So it can happen. Usually when it happens, some stuff's already happened beforehand on your thoughts and on your loves. It's just lining the deeds up with them. But when we try to focus on changing our deeds, we get stuck. I don't know if you know much Greek mythology, but there's a myth about a guy called Odysseus. And he was a sailor who wanted to go past this island. On this island, it was where the sirens lived. Now, the sirens were like these demonic beings who really they're a good illustration of sin. And what they did is they sang, and they sang this alluring song. And any ship that was coming past was captivated by uh, this song and wanted to turn the ship to go onto the island. Uh, and when they were there, they, they kind of washed up on the rocks, and these sirens would devour them. That's how the myth worked. Now, Odysseus, he kind of wanted to hear their song. But he didn't want to go along with it. He wanted to change his actions from taking his ship onto the rocks. So what he did is he said to his sailors, get some ropes and tie me to the mast so that whatever's going on inside, I can't go for it. I can't take the wheel of the ship and turn it. And then all of you put wax in your ears so none of you can hear it. I want to hear the call, but I don't want my deeds to follow this thing. And it worked, he, he went past the island. But when I think about that story, I think, isn't that heartbreaking? That he didn't do it, but his heart was so uh, captured by it. He was constrained from doing the thing, but inside he was a slave to them, even though he hadn't gone. Like, everything in him was craving going onto this island. Sometimes when we set ourselves rules, when we set ourselves laws or to-do lists, it's like the ropes binding him. But nothing's changed in us. 
So maybe we need to change our thoughts instead. Maybe we go upstream. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? When it's not enough to just not commit murder. He said, actually, if you get angry, it's the same kind of thing. It's not enough to just not commit adultery. Like, don't indulge the lustful thoughts. A good picture to, to think about this is like there's two little monsters in your brain, right? Um, and you can choose to either feed them or starve them. So the more you feed them, then the stronger they'll grow. And if you're feeding the one that's kind of pro-sin, that's pro all the stuff you don't want to do, but you start thinking about it, it'll grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Eventually, it'll burst those ropes on Odysseus and go after the sirens, right? Your thoughts will eventually go there. Or you can starve it and feed the other one that's thinking about things that are noble and worthy and pure, like Paul talks about in Philippians 4. And that's going to change something. So it's far better to try and change your thinking than just try to change your deeds. But it can still leave us a bit conflicted because it's possible, and particularly for those of you here at a school of theology, we can do a lot of the thinking stuff. We can be like, yeah, I'm going to get all my thoughts lined up. I'm going to know stuff totally right. It probably won't be enough to change your actions. Think about the Pharisees. You know, they knew a lot, didn't they? You can understand God and his ways but not love God and his ways. And that's not going to provide the change. So really, we need to go at the level of our affections. And when we heard that um, passage in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, these are things that are on the affection level. It's our, our love, our joy, our peace. This is what we want to see formed in us. How do our affections change? It's so much more complicated than a shallow list of do's and don'ts. It's the new heart given to us by God, and it's the gospel. It's as we see the beauty of Christ, and as we receive it, it's the same thing that brought us into the faith that transforms us. The deeper we see his grace and glory, the more transformed we are by it. Elise Fitzpatrick said, we can learn what loving obedience looks like if we really want to do it, but only the gospel could actually implant the love and desire to obey in your heart. There's a guy called Jason, and Jason was another of the, the Greek myths, and he also wanted to go past this island that the sirens were on. He didn't get any ropes. He didn't get tied to any mast. No one had wax in their ears. Instead, he invited Orpheus to come with him, and Orpheus was the finest musician in the land. And Jason said, Orpheus, here's what I want you to do. Whenever the sirens sing, I want you to play. I want you to play your music and create a sweeter song. That's what Orpheus did. And they sailed past the island, and there's the allure from the sirens, and then Orpheus' song floods it. It's not just that they don't go and shipwreck. They don't want to. Why would they go after that when there's something better, something more fulfilling, something more satisfied, something that's captured them more fully? It's like that. The gospel, Christ. As you love him, then the desire for other things it fades in comparison because he's better, because he fulfills all those deep desires. And the more you get to know him and the more you see who he is, that's the key to change. There's an old sermon about 200 years old. That I think it's my favorite sermon title of every sermon ever. By a guy called Thomas Chalmers, and he called it the expulsive power of a new affection. And that gets the idea of this. All the old desires, there's an expulsive power when you get this new affection for God. I've given you a little quote on your handout from there. 
says there are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity, so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon simply to withdraw its regards from an object that's not worthy. So basically saying all that stuff's rubbish, you shouldn't love it. Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment. So that the heart shall be prevailed upon, not to resign an old affection, which shall have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new one. The love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but it may be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. The heart cannot be prevailed upon to part with the world by a simple act of resignation, but may not the heart be prevailed upon to admit into its preference another who shall subordinate the world and bring it down from its wanted ascendancy. That's it. If you get Christ on the throne, you look to him, you love him. And that's the key to change in the Christian life.